0: Good morning. First Peter, go ahead and find your place there, chapter 1. I, I don't know about you, but just personal testimony really quick. I can't describe the soul-strengthening thing it is to stand and sing the great truths like we sang together uh, this morning. Uh, thankful for this team that leads us in truth to stand and sing beside one another. The things that we sang this morning, just grateful for that. Grateful to be with you. Grateful to open up God's word First Peter this morning. I just want to remind you, we are walking through 1 and 2 Peter this year, and uh, maybe if you're new, this is maybe your first Sunday with us, you couldn't be here last week or whatever. I just want to remind you, there's ways that you can make the most out of this study in your own life, and encourage you to do that. Uh, first is to read it. <laughs> read First Peter along with us. There's a reading plan uh, that you can follow along. It's on the app, it's in print out in the foyer, you can pick that thing up, just read day by day. Uh, along with the church family through First Peter, uh, commit to gathering together like this on Sunday morning. Just make that a part of your schedule. We're going to walk verse by verse, really slow and intentional, through First Peter. And uh, there's some study tools out there you can pick up as well. And then there's opportunities for you to talk through First Peter in groups. And this Wednesday night, just want to point out to you something called behind the message. here, and it's just that. We'll go a little deeper, a little further, ask questions, have dialogue around 1 Peter. So if you're not connected anywhere, I encourage you to check that out this Wednesday night at 6.30. All right? Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read for us uh, the first two verses, and then we're going to talk through this uh, this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Peter An Apostle of Jesus Christ. Talked about that last week. The author of this letter is the Apostle Peter himself, known in the Bible as Cephas. Uh, Simon was his name originally. Jesus changed it to Peter, Cephas, which means rock. And this morning we're going to talk beyond just who wrote this letter. We're going to talk about the recipients of this letter. Uh, Who is Peter writing to? He goes on and he says, to those... Who are the elect exiles of the dispersion? He calls this group of people that he's writing to the elect or chosen exiles of the dispersion. That's a hugely important phrase for understanding 1 Peter. He's writing to a group of believers who have been chosen by God, watch this, out of this world, but are very much still living in the world. They've been chosen by God out of the world, just like you and me, but are very much still living in this fallen world. What does that look like? What comes with that? Peter talks about that. We're going to focus on that a little bit this morning. He says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and here's the regions he's primarily writing to. This would be modern day Turkey, Asia Minor in that day, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Real people in a real place at a real point in time in history. It's not myth. Verse 2, he says, according to, in other words, we're going to talk about this this morning. Your election or choice by God out of this world and placement in this world is not by chance. It is by or according to, verse 2, the very foreknowledge of God the Father himself. In the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. What in the world does that mean? We'll talk about that this morning. And then here's Peter's wish. This is not just throwaway language. He desires for these elect exiles of the dispersion. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So what's going on here? What's Peter writing about in this particular group he's writing to? Let's talk about that a little bit this morning. And, and to help set the context, I want to take you back to a date in history. The date is July 19th, 64 A.D., the Roman Empire. This time when Peter is writing this letter, and on that day, the city of Rome is burning The emperor Nero is fiddling, as history says, watching his city of Rome burn. The city of of Rome, we're told by historians, burned for three days and three nights. The fire was put out and then it broke out again. We're told that the city of Rome had very narrow streets and the structures were all made of wood and a fire very quickly could and did consume much of the city of Rome in this year, AD 64. The Roman emperor himself, Nero, was widely known and to be responsible for the fire himself. See, it was known that Nero, the emperor, had a passion for building. He just liked to build things. He liked to build new things. And it was known that he went to great lengths to even destroy what had been built just so he could build new things. It was a passion that he had. So it's said that Nero watched the burning of his own city from his own safe tower with great delight. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Those who tried to put out the fire were hindered and the fire was rekindled over and over again. Rome was nearly destroyed. The people of Rome were devastated. Many were left homeless. Many loved ones had lost their lives. There was economic devastation by the city. One historian wrote that there was a hopeless brotherhood of wretchedness, which means it was tough times in Rome following this fire. One historian says the ancient landmarks, the ancestral shrines vanished, their temples were destroyed, their household gods were gone. There was great confusion among the people. And here's what happened. They, in their minds, held Nero responsible. So here's what the emperor needed. Ready for this? Nero needed a scapegoat. Needed, Nero needed someone to pin the responsibility of this devastation in Rome on. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said this, Nothing could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. And so, in the hope of dissipating this rumor, Nero falsely diverted the charge on a group of people to whom the masses had given the name as Christians. Christians. They were a detested for the abominations they perpetrated and it was quite easy to pin this upon this group known as Christians. This is the bottom line, Nero needed a scapegoat and he was able to pin the Christians of Rome for the devastation and the burning of the city. I've thought a lot about this, and you guys know I've told you over and over that I love history. I love studying history, so I've asked some questions about this. Again, this is the context that Peter is writing in this day in the Roman Empire. Why Christians? Why did Nero choose to blame it on Christians? Well, here's some things that I learned. One, Christians were already slandered and looked upon with suspicion. They were a kind of a peculiar sort. They said some strange things and they did some strange things and they talked a lot about blood and they worshipped this dead Jew that was perceived to be this dead Jew and they, they did some things that didn't make a lot of sense. They were, they were kind of already seen as strangers, aliens. They had an association with Jews, which added to this. There was strong anti Semitism in Rome at this time. They participated in something called a love feast or the Lord's Supper that was closed to unbelievers, and rumors abounded about the drinking of blood and eating of flesh. That's weird. They were accused of breaking up families as wives and young people became followers of Jesus. And they were accused of being those that broke up families. And finally, there was this talk among believers of a world one day that was going to dissolve in flames. (laughs) It was easy to pin the burning of Rome upon these believers in that day. As a result of these accusations under Nero... The persecution intensified in Rome and the regions around Rome. At a minimum, believers were now seen as a threat, ostracized, unRoman, immoral, moved to the margins of society. To name the name of Jesus at this time now was increasingly at odds with the culture around them. Within a very few months, Christians were being imprisoned, racked, seared, boiled, burned, scourged, stoned, and hanged as the persecution only intensified. At the worst, Nero rolled Christians in pitch. He set them on fire while they were still alive, used them as living torches to light his garden parties. This persecution, which began in the city of Rome, quickly spread throughout regions of the entire empire, including Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. See that? So all that's history and background to give you the understanding that the Apostle Peter is writing to real people in a real place at a real time who are experiencing severe difficulty and severe trial. That gives you a little background of what was going on in the world at that time. And maybe it helps you understand a little bit more as we're reading through First Peter and you read First Peter why... He says things like this. Just listen to some of these verses. We've already read some of these, but 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. And they were feeling like exiles. They were feeling the reality of being chosen out of the world, but very much still left in the world. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 1.6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We understand a little bit more of that now. 1 Peter 3.13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You may suffer for righteousness sake first peter 4 he says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or trial which has come up on you to test you it's not without purpose it has come up on you to test you do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you You've been called out of this world, but yet you're very much living in this world. You should not be surprised. And then I want you to listen real carefully, and I'm going to draw a big truth out of this that's going to kind of guide us this morning. First uh, Peter four nineteen says, Therefore, Peter writes, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There is a suffering that is very much according to the will of God. Verse 20 goes on to say, For what credit is there if you, when you sin, you're beaten for it and endure? He's saying, the suffering we're talking about is not suffering for being foolish. is not suffering just for the sake of being weird. It's not suffering because of your own sin and your own poor decisions. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about particularly, keep going, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you, I want you to hear this, endure. You endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Can I just stop right there for a minute and say this? Western American Christians have a very small category for what Peter just said. It really doesn't make sense to us. Can we just be honest about that? Peter says, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And let's be clear, Jesus is a whole lot more an example than an example, but Peter is saying the life of Jesus is an example for you while you're going through these trials and suffering so that you might follow in his steps. Now. Try to pull all this together and help you this morning. And I, I, I'm just going to be a good level honest with you. I, I've wrestled with this message. <laughs> I mean, it, you always feel the weight as a communicator and one of your lead pastors to come and teach the word of God. For whatever reason, this has been especially heavy on me personally because I think we desperately need what Peter is saying to us. And at the same time, we naturally push back on what Peter's going to say. So here's a big truth that maybe pulls some of these things together for us this morning. It's this. According to what I just read in Peter, especially 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21, God wills his people to suffer and endure well for his sake in this present world. God wills. He said you're suffering according to the will of God. He is calling you to endure well in it. For his sake, this is not suffering that naturally occur in this life that he's talking about due to sickness or inconveniences or my appliances broke down or whatever it is. This is a suffering in the present world because they name the name of Christ for his sake in this present world. I thought through what the response is, what maybe the response then was when you hear a big truth like this, that God wills for his people to suffer and endure well. Here's some of our responses. I think that maybe you're even going through your mind this morning. Even mine as I was preparing for this, we have no category sometimes for this in our western mind that God calls us to suffer and endure well as believers. We're not even really sure what that looks like. Let me give you some more examples of that. Why is that? Here's some reasons, I think. Number one, maybe it's because we've, we've drunk the Kool-Aid in one way or another of what I call the false prosperity gospel. And you say, I don't believe the prosperity gospel. I don't even watch TBN. I don't watch that stuff. I don't believe in that. But you've all been impacted by it. I've been impacted by it. And here's one of the ways. Here's a thought we believe. The more godly I am, the better our lives will be now on earth. Apostle Paul says, The more godly you are, the more you might suffer. The more godly you are in a broken world, the more you might have to endure. We struggle with a category for that in our thinking. It could be because of cultural Christianity which we all have been impacted by in one way or another. What do you mean by that? Cultural Christianity is defined somewhat like this. Following Jesus is defined more by the religious community around me, maybe a political party, maybe the U.S. Constitution more than the authority of Scripture. Maybe we've all been impacted by that. I think this is the case too, We, me, all of us, have been raised in a culture in America that has up to this point in many ways viewed Christianity as credible. That day is quickly dissipating. Elements of Christianity have been woven into the fabric of everyday life. We've grown up that way. We've experienced that in large part. Here's what one author, Josh Tross, said. I'm reading this right now. He says this, The basic categories assumed in the Christian story are no longer taken for granted today. In many cases, the gospel story is presumed not only to be false, but to be an oppressive leftover from the past. You name the name of Christ... Somebody's going to call you oppressive. Somebody might call you a criminal. The culture in which we live in is radically changing. We talk a lot about that. That means our approach to the culture has to change. And I'll just be honest, even the way we minister and make disciples as a church has to adjust. You know that. Peter deals with that. Peter addresses that. Here's maybe a way to sum all this up. With each passing day, authentic, Bible-saturated, God-honoring, Spirit-filled believers are becoming more and more out of step with our modern culture. And increasingly, not only misunderstood, but seen as oppressive and downright immoral. That was a lot, wasn't it? That was heavy. I, I get that. With each passing day, authentic, I'm not talking about cultural Christians, authentic, Bible-saturated, God-honoring, Spirit-filled Christians are becoming more and more out of step with our modern culture and increasingly not only misunderstood, I don't know what they're talking about, but seen as oppressive and even immoral. Culture's changing. We see that. Thankful in the providence of God that he would love us to the point of walking us through First Peter right now. And we need it. Elect exiles called out of this world, but very much left living in this world for a purpose. Peter's going to help us with that. So then, just a few more questions about this. And then we actually are going to get back to verse 2 of First Peter in just a minute. All this is going to help us, I think, as we continue to walk through First Peter. A little bit of introduction why are we to expect that then? What's the root behind the reality that as Christians in this present world, even though we may not even have a category fright right now in our understanding, but Peter says things like God has called us to this. We are called to this, to suffer and endure. Why is that? Well, let me give you the greatest authority I know. It's Jesus himself. You can follow this on the screen, much of what Peter says in his letter was informed and taught by Jesus himself when Peter walked with him for three and a half years, we talked about that last week, much of the letter of first Peter is the teaching of Jesus that we see in the gospels then pressed out over time in the life of Peter particularly how to relate to the world around us. Jesus taught much about that. I'm going to read one passage very quickly, John 15, 18 through 21. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Peter's there. Peter's hearing it all. He's taking it in. Maybe he doesn't fully understand it. Maybe he did not have a good category for it. But now 40 years later, Peter understands it. Just a few days before Jesus is crucified. So of utmost importance, Jesus is teaching this to his disciples. He says this, John 15, beginning of verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus, the God-man, steps into the world, perfect righteousness and holiness. It should not be surprising that the world that loves darkness and runs to darkness hated it. Verse 19. Jesus says, if you, his disciples, were of the world. That's a, a possessive sense, meaning if you belong to the world, then the world would love you as its own. So if you were of the world, the world would love you. Keep going. But because you are not of the world, or you could translate it, belonging to the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's the phrase we've been using over and over. And that's the phrase I think that informs Peter saying you are an elect, exile, chosen. Where do you get that from? Jesus says you have been chosen out of the world. I have called you out of the world. Therefore you are not of the world. You do not belong to the world. Therefore the world doesn't understand and the world hates you. You're going to experience resistance. Therefore, like we said earlier, The more godly I become, the more like Jesus I become, the better my life's going to be. Nope, not what Peter says. It's going to become more difficult in this fallen world. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul told Timothy. Jesus says, look, Peter, the reason is you're not of the world. The reason you're not of the world is because I've called you out of the world. My redemptive good purpose for you. So let me give you a couple big ideas and we'll continue on. to Try to get back to 1 Peter 1. Here's the first big idea, I think, that comes out of what Jesus says here. Jesus' followers face suffering in this world because we're not of this world. You're not out of this world. That's what Peter says, verse 1, back to first Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus to those who are elect exiles. You're in this world, but you've been chosen out of this world. You're not of this world. Okay, pause. Pastor Mike, I hear that a lot. Maybe you've been raised in church. Maybe you've heard that phrase. We're we're in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? What does that look like practically? What does it practically mean that you, if you are a born-again disciple of Jesus, are not of this world? Let me give you a few examples of this. I'm going to run through these quickly. You can write these down, talk through these, ponder through these in your group. We'll talk more about it Wednesday night behind the message. Here's the reality. As a result of being born-again... As a result of your new birth in Christ, we are a new creation. We as believers have a new nature, a new identity, new allegiances, new family, new priorities, new master, new future, new hope, and all of that, none of it is of this world. None of it. Let me press that down even further. Let me give you some biblical examples. Number one, you can write this down in your notes if you're like, we're of a different kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, His people, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You are part of another kingdom, a yet unrevealed kingdom that's coming, and you very much still live in this fallen kingdom, but you are part of another kingdom. You're not of this world. Talked about that through the Gospel of Matthew. So much kingdom living as kingdom people. We have a different identity. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in this world, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You've been crucified, you've died to self, and you live by the life of Christ in you. Completely different from the world. Now listen, here's another one. You have a different master. Jesus says this, he teaches this in the Gospels. We read about this in Matthew. I'm going to read it out of Mark 8, but we read it in Matthew as well. He says this, Jesus, to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. <laughs> Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for the sake of the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and, and forfeit his own soul? We can talk about that passage forever. Let me point out one phrase. Jesus says, come to me, you deny yourself. You die to self. Can I just say that phrase alone of what it means to be a disciple is in direct contrast to the world you and I are living in today? Listen, I'm not going to chase this too far. Don't make this a political statement. Just make it a reality. The idea that Jesus calls us to die to self flies in the face of everything you are currently hearing that, no, the greatest freedom I have is to be me. Pursue what I want, how I want, I can be who I want. And if you in any way oppose me in that, now watch, it used to be where you're just disagreeing. Today you are called immoral. For saying exactly what Jesus said. Here's the point. You and I have a different master. We have died to self. And Jesus is Lord. Therefore my personal preferences. My opinions. My own desires. Are submitted to him. And I assure you. Those that do not know Jesus. Do not live that way. Now hear all this, and I just want to stop right here and make another quick point. The response to understanding things like this is not to take on the the spirit of withdrawal. Okay then, here's what that means. I'm not of this world, I'm in the world. We better hunker down in our Christian bunker and get out of this world. No, you've been left here for a purpose. Secondly, it is not to take on the militant posture of those enemies. The world is our enemy. We go after them. No, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus said, Pray for your enemies. That's why you're still here. Call it what it is, call sin what it is, and then plead that Jesus would save those who are caught in darkness. And Jesus, use me as the messenger to go give it offense for the hope that is within me, yet with gentleness and reverence. Got all that? Different identity, different master. I'll give you two more, really quick. We're not of the world. Here's another one. Different loves. We love things. Are, we, we, our loves are not the same. We love things that the world don't love, and the world looks at us and say, "Why don't you love this?" Because it, we're, we're born again. We have a different nature. Let me give you an example. First John two fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. We have different loves. Makes us different. We have different practices. 1 John 3 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because it's not who we are anymore. We've been born again. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. You have different practices. You have different loves. You have a different master. You have a different identity. And and that's the whole point. You are elect, chosen out of this world. You do not belong to the world anymore. Therefore, your entire life is different. Therefore, the world looks at you and says, why are you not doing what we're doing? Why do you not act like we do? And there's this tension that may result in suffering. There's a call to endure. And what does that look like? What does that look like then, practically? I want, I want with carefully, but I want to try to be as practical as I can to help you and arm you. What does that look like? What did that look like then? What does that look like now? Let me give you a few examples. First Peter three nine. First Peter says, Peter says to these exiles, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And what might this look like? Verbal insults. You might be put in certain categories, labeled in a certain way. Today, you are, are going to be called judgmental, intolerant, indifferent. Whatever phrase, is you, there's going to be these verbal insults at you. Verbal insults at them. Keep going. First Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the point. Evil will be called good, and good will be called evil. And you will be slandered as an evildoer. That's what they were. They're unRoman. They're unpatriotic. They don't love the things we do. What they're doing is evil. It's immoral. Call anything sin in this world that God calls sin, you may be considered emotionally damaging and hurtful and Immoral. You're damaging someone when in truth we know it's the most loving thing we can do is pointing people to the truth of Jesus. The world doesn't see it that way. I'll give you another example. You may be called oppressive and you may be slandered if you are the lone voice calling a married couple to endure through the marriage even though it's difficult when the world says, no, end it, you deserve more, get out of that marriage. No, the disciple of Jesus may call someone to endure even in a difficult situation. Why? Because we've been called to that. You'll be called oppressive, judgmental, unloving. Jesus, we've been called to that. 1 Peter 4 4. I'll give you some more quick examples, really quick. With respect, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, sin, and they malign you. The word malign in 1 Peter, watch this, means to vilify. You're the villain. The people in the day of Rome, they were the villains. A per, and you see this playing all the time. A person who's walking in holiness and purity and walking with the Lord Jesus now will be seen as the villain. Now will be seen as the villain. A couple more quickly. 1 Peter two nineteen. for this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Unfair, unjust treatment may come our way passed over excluded danger of losing a job losing a position not getting a promotion you say oh come on is that happening that may happen in the west coast or somewhere these big cities what are you talking about quickly I'm going to read you an email from one of your own church members got this two weeks ago I'm going to share their name They write and they say, hello, I hope you're doing well. I'm writing for some scriptural wisdom and advice. I teach eighth grade here at a local school. I know this is a mission field for me. There are many identity issues with the group of kids here. This past week I have been told that I must call two girls by their new neutral names and call these two girls by the pronoun he. This is because parents have approved this with the administration. I have prayed over this, and I know I cannot do this because of my testimony and my beliefs, and you're exactly right. Say, come on, that's a thousand miles away from here, Washington County, two weeks ago. What's the point? You may suffer unfair, unjust treatment. You may be passed over. It may cost you, but we are to continue to hold fast and endure well. Hold fast and endure well. 1 Peter 4.16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be ashamed, or let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Last illustration, you say, uh, Friday, a law was passed in Canada. Canada, it's north, by the way. You could be charged with a crime as a pastor, as a parent, as a friend. If you communicate that anything to do with the array of the LGBTQ lifestyle is wrong or immoral or a sin, you can be charged with a crime. You can be charged with a crime as a parent to say to your child, sweet girl, you're a girl. culture we live in is radically changing. Now, you hear all that and you go, Pastor Mike, we gotta get out of here, we gotta bail out, what are we gonna do? No, that's not what Peter says. God wills his people to suffer and endure well for his sake in this present world. Jesus' followers face suffering in this world because we are not of this world. How do we suffer well as Jesus' followers in this present world? 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Hey, we just read that, going to read it again. We're going to break it down very quickly, give you some application. 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the chosen exiles of the dispersion. Why are you chosen exiles of the dispersion? Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, you chosen exiles of the dispersion, called out by God, but very much living in this present world. How do we endure well? Here's your final big idea. Jesus' followers endure because of our triune God's redemptive work on our behalf. Peter is encouraging these exiles. It is to be strengthening to us to lift our eyes above the present situation to the eternal redemptive purposes of God, which, oh, by the way, will not fail. Will not fail. Give you three things really quick flow out of this. As a source of encouragement, Peter shares some things. He says, God the Father chooses those for salvation. Verse 2 according to. Why are you an elect exile? Why are you in the situation you in? Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Your current situation as elect exiles in this world is according to, based upon, the result of not happen chance, not circumstances. Oh no, I'm just an unlucky guy. No, it is the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge here is a divine decision that was made, a sovereign choice, a determination. Foreknowledge in Scripture is not merely God knew something. Foreknowledge in Scripture, as it's used in the book of Acts, as it's used in the book of Romans, is God's choice, His determination ahead of time. Not based on us, not based on anything we could or would do, but He is the determining factor. Not merely that God knew beforehand who would believe, but rather in eternity past, He lovingly, graciously, and undeservedly determined those who would belong to Him. He says to these elect exiles, what's this? You're rejected by the world? Hang on. You're chosen by God. That is to be of immense encouragement to these exiles. You're chosen of God. You're chosen out of this world. To these exiles, slandered, ridiculed, suffering unjustly, Peter declares that although the world rejects you, you are choice and beloved by God the Father from eternity past all the way to your glorification in Christ. Endure well. Endure well. Secondly, says God the Spirit sets apart those for salvation. Verse 2, In the sanctification of the Spirit, the determination of God the Father in eternity past, the agent of that work is none other than the Holy Spirit of God himself. He is the active agent in our redemption, in our salvation. Sanctification is the idea of being set apart, called out, set apart for God, set apart from sin, and yet very much left in this world. The idea of sanctification is that enabling by the Spirit to see Christ for who He is, to see our own sin, to be called to God. And then that ongoing progressive work of the Spirit that is happening in you, child of God, and the Spirit of God uses every single thing in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Watch. Even suffering. And by the way, especially suffering that we endure in this present world. The Christian, the Holy Spirit is essential to every part of the Christian life and every step in it. It is the Holy Spirit who awakens us with the first faint longings for God. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins and leads us to the cross where we see Christ as our substitute, our Savior. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to be freed from the sins which had us in their grip. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the assurance of our forgiveness in Christ. The beginning, the middle, the end of the Christian life are the work of the Holy Spirit of God Peter reminds these elect exiles you are currently an exile because of the foreknowledge of God and very much a part of the work and the action of the spirit of God who is in you he will finish what he started thirdly quickly what's the evidence what's the evidence of the electing of the Father and the setting apart of the Spirit? How do you know? Team can come on up and just begin to play and move into a time of response, but hang with me. I don't want you to miss this last thing. What's the evidence of the foreknowledge of God and the work of the Spirit? He says it, verse two. He says, foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Spirit, little phrase, verse two, for obedience. Circle that in your Bible. For obedience, meaning. The evidence that someone has been set apart, called of God, the work of the Spirit is this. A life of submission, a coming to Christ and bending the knee in faith and repentance. And a life that follows of submission to Jesus as Lord. You are set apart for that. It is our posture as Christians. Now watch, don't get this backwards. He doesn't say, if you obey, then God's going to choose you. If you obey, Spirit of God is going to set you apart. No, no, no. God made a choice in eternity past, totally unrelated to anything you could ever bring to the table out of His grace. Spirit of God at work in your life, opening your eyes, empowering us to walk. And evidence of that Spirit, our submission to Him is the submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Great Commission teaching and learning everything He's commanded us to do. It's Discipleship. Then you go on this final thing and we'll finish here, it's incredible, I don't want you to miss this and we'll be done. <laughs> for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. So is that blood stuff again. If you're a non-Christian, you walk in and you hear all this blood talk, you all have some weird fascination with blood. Because blood points to the life of our Savior. So what does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? And We interpret that and we go, well, here's what I think it means. I think it means forgiveness. I think it means this. You know how you know what it means? What does the Bible say it means? Peter has the Old Testament in mind. In the Old Testament, there were three times and three times only. And you say, this is a lot. Hang on. Three times and three times only. People were sprinkled with blood. One was in Leviticus 14. When a leper was sprinkled as a demonstration of his cleansing. And by the way, his ongoing cleansing. His ongoing cleansing. Same for you. That's not the only case. There was another case when Aaron and the priest were sprinkled with blood, and it was a picture and a sign of being set apart for service to God. You're set apart for service to God. I think that's another picture Peter had in mind. But I don't think it's the primary picture. The most significant, significant sprinkling of blood on people in the Old Testament was in Exodus 24 when God sovereignly His children out of Egypt called them to Himself. He pursued them and He brought them, what's this, into a covenant with Him. Listen, brothers and sisters, I don't have time to explain it. This is covenant language. You're in a covenant with God Almighty. And in Exodus 24, God the Father took and He made a covenant with His people, and they did it with the, the splitting of the lambs and the, the goats and all that. And over and over, they had to make this covenant, and they would sprinkle the blood on the people as a part of, yes, you'll pursue obedience. And then they would take the same blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar as a picture of God's faithfulness to His people, regardless of what they did. And you say, man, that's an incredible picture. That was done with the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus, when He brought His disciples together in the Lord's Supper that night before He was crucified, said, hey, this is my blood of the new covenant you are sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in a new covenant which means God Almighty is absolutely faithful to you no matter what you are in a covenant with the creator of the universe Peter says to these elect exiles been chosen out of this world but you've been left in this world not by chance are the predetermined, gracious foreknowledge of God the Father to His glory, the sanctifying work of the Spirit by His strength. You walk in obedience to Him, and you've been sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are in a new covenant that is forever and ever because of the unbreakable faithfulness of your God. Endure well. Endure bow our heads to time of response this morning maybe you're here this morning and you've never been born again you are still of this world that's you this morning I pray that you would cry out to your Savior King Jesus to save you turn from your sin and receive him as Savior and Lord maybe you're here and you're facing difficulty, maybe a degree of persecution, slander, oppression, whatever it is, endure well. Endure well. Father, we love you, thank you. Sometimes these truths are too great for us to even get our minds around this morning. Lord, we thank you. Holy Spirit, I invite you in our lives to take these truths and bear fruit in us and send us out as set apart, sanctifying Jesus as Lord The world will see a hope that it can find nowhere else. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.